0: Economists occasionally make mistakes, although that may beg belief, it is indeed true. But there is a greatest error in the history of economic thought. Welcome to episode 85 of the Scottish Liberty Podcast with me, Anthony Samroff. And me, Tom Ward. Our special guest today is George Reisman, Professor Emeritus, at Pepperdine University and author of Capitalism, a treatise on economics, which you can find at www.capitalism.net, George Reisman's site, and Amazon. Uh, Professor Reisman, thank you so much for joining us on the Scottish Liberty Podcast.
1: I'm glad to be on it.
0: So before we get into your article, Rectifying the Greatest Error in the History of Economic Thought. It'd be interesting to know a little bit about the background of your own intellectual development. How did you become a capitalist, a free market advocate?
1: Well, as a chi- I was a child during World War II and uh, I remember asking my father, why did the United States deserve uh, to win the war, and all other for- wars it had fought. And uh, he his answer was, because of its constitution. And mm. I got the idea, even as a young child, that the constitution defined the character of our government. And uh, I l- uh, learned a little bit as I was growing up that it meant the government cannot tell you what to do, that you had individual rights. And I remember, uh, even as a child, around the age of six, I shocked um, uh, many of my acquaintances by openly saying, uh, the president stinks. I didn't know anything about the president, uh, but I had the idea that I had the right to say it. Mm -hmm. And uh, they were shocked and outraged. And I said, Congress will protect me. I had the basic idea. There was the division of powers. And uh, it served to protect the individual citizen. Uh, a, a, a few years later, uh, I had some athletic equipment. My father uh, had an ambition that I should be an athlete. And so he was sure I had a football and a basketball. And I lived right next door to my junior high school. And I would go into the schoolyard with my uh, football or basketball or whatever, and uh a bunch of uh, older, bigger, stronger, tougher guys would just grab it and they'd start playing with it. And I couldn't even play, be in, the, in their game. Hmm. And I grasped that that's what the uh, city government and tenants in New York were doing to the landlords with rent control. Right. They were seizing other people's property for their own enjoyment and not giving a damn about whoever owned the property. And so, uh, I was already well set, uh, toward advocacy of individual rights in the free market. And, I, I was, this uh, junior high school I went to, and then later the high school, uh, it might as well, it might as well have been in Cuba. It was, uh, filled with, uh, far left Marxists. And, uh, I was, uh, every time I would argue, advance an argument in favor of freedom, they'd say, oh, the people will starve to death or wages will be, uh, through the floor, mm. one thing after mm-hmm. another. And I was looking for defenders of freedom. And the, uh, f- the, the first name that uh, uh, crossed me was uh, Adam Smith. Right. He was supposed to be the father of capitalism. And uh, shortly after my uh, bar mitzvah at the age of 13, I had a little extra money. And uh, one of the things I did was buy the wealth of nations. And I started reading it. And I read uh, all of book one. I got bogged down in the digression on silver. Mm -hmm. I was very disappointed in Adam Smith because uh, what he was saying, he was advancing the position that uh, the wage earners are being cheated by the phenomenon of profit. He viewed profit as a deduction from what was originally, naturally and rightfully all wages. uh, We could go right into, that's my main subject today, but you asked about my development. Uh, There were other steps in the development. I got hold of a history of economic thought, and I learned about David Ricardo, and I bought his uh, Principles of Political Economy and Taxation, and I had a little bit of understanding of it, but here again, uh, Ricardo was propounding the labor theory of value and uh, making it seem that uh, the wage earners uh, deserve uh, the full product, and profit and interest in anything that isn't wages is an unjust deduction from what should be wages. Well, uh, uh, in, in the following year, when I was 14, I came across a publication called The Freeman. It yes. was outstanding at the time, not so uh, good today. Uh, it was edited by Henry Hazlitt, who was a fantastic individual. And uh, in it, I came across an article by Ludwig von Mises, and uh, he, it was on Say's Law. And here I saw someone writing with a great intellectual force and great self-assurance, and uh, I tried to read a little bit further. By the time I was 15, I was able to read his Socialism, and that mm. changed my life. Okay, well, uh, I, I, was, I, I ended up uh, getting an introduction to Mises, uh, the year later when I was 16. Uh, I was with a friend named Ralph Rako, and Mises invited us to attend his graduate seminar at NYU, wow. which we took him up on. And so I was, uh, at that time, uh, in the following fall, I entered Columbia College, and while I was at Columbia, every Thursday night, I would attend Mises' seminar. And I, uh, after I graduated from Columbia, I uh, enrolled at NYU's business school where Mises was teaching, and uh, I got my M- both my MBA and PhD under him. Wow, very wonderful. So in my view, in, in my view, Mises well, was the greatest man of the 20th century. Uh, the capitalist system was under attack in every aspect. Mm. Again and again, it had no systematic defense. Mises provided, uh, In-depth, thoroughgoing, systematic defense of capitalism. Uh, he wasn't right in every single detail, but he was overwhelmingly right, and uh, I think he was the leading defender of civilization in the 20th century because of his defense of capitalism. And wow. I've tried to follow in his path, but I have some uh, important additions of my own to to add uh, to what he and a few others have accomplished.
0: Well, well, thank you
1: very much. It's very
0: impressive to me that even as a teenager at the age of 13, um, reading Adam Smith, you were able to point out things in it that you didn't um, agree with or uh, thought were mistaken. Um, Right. It seems like you were born to be an economist with your background, someone who's got the enthusiasm to read David Ricardo. And Ludwig von Mises and their teens is certainly um destined for greatness, I would say. So um, Thank you. Yes, um I'm interested we were go we we're gonna talk a little bit about your misgivings about Adam Smith and Marx in terms of Adam Smith having really set the stage for the Marxist yeah. Labour theory of value. And um, but yeah. I'd like to know a little bit more about your history, because this is of great interest to me, as um, you were personally acquainted with two of my great heroes, uh, Ludwig von Mises and Ayn Rand, and I would would yes. just like to hear a little bit about well, two things. It really breaks down to four questions because what your association was like with each of them, what you learned, what you learned from each of them, um and a little bit about how you found them. To be as human beings, because obviously I was born um, 32 years ago and I would never have a, i I don't have access to uh, the testimonies of that many people who met these people in person, so that's very
1: precious to me. Well, the way I met Ayn Rand was uh, once I was in Mises' seminar, uh, I met uh, a man named Murray Rothbard whom I'm sure some of the members of your audience yeah. at least, uh, have, have heard. And I became very close friends with Rothbard uh, from the time I was 16 to the time I was 21. <clears throat> and um, about a year after I met him, there was a group of us. Uh, we called ourselves the Circle Bastiat. Mm. And it included uh, Ralph Rako and Leonard Ligio, uh, Bob Hessen, Ronald Hamaway and, and a, a couple of others. And uh, one night, Rothbard uh, mentioned Ayn Rand, and he described her as a really fascinating person. And uh, we all wanted to meet her. And so uh, he arranged for a meeting uh, in July of 1954. I think it was uh, July 11th. We had two Saturday night meetings, that uh, both of which lasted till uh, five in the morning the next day. And uh, uh, I was a utilitarian, having studied under Mises and absorbed his philosophy. And Ayn Rand, of course, was the uh, founder of objectivism. And so uh, the discussion became uh, very contentious. And uh, I was uh, surprised that I couldn't uh, overcome her and that she kept uh, pushing me to take positions I didn't want to take. Right. Wow. And uh, so, uh, and, you know, one thing led to another. At some point in the discussion, uh, I expressed the view that in order for motion to be possible, there had to be a void, an absolutely empty space. And she responded to that 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 was worse than anything a communist could have said. Wow. <laughs> and and uh, her reason, of course, was that I was claiming that non-existence, the void, exists. Right. Uh, And uh, I was stunned by uh, her statement and argument, but I I got to understand it uh, sometime later. Anyway, uh, we parted on not-too-friendly terms, and uh, four years later, Atlas Shrugged appeared, or three years later, I guess, in 1957, three years later, And uh, I read Atlas and uh, uh, was sucked into it. I did nothing for four days except uh, I had to stop to eat and sleep. Um, I I was uh, absolutely overwhelmed by Atlas. Mm -hmm. And so all of us, uh, uh, Rothbard, myself, Reiko et al., uh, we came down and met Ayn Rand again, and this time on um, uh, much friendlier terms. Now, as to uh, what I learned from Ayn Rand and Mises, from Mises I learned uh, the the great bulk of my knowledge on economics, and uh, and, and I would say to a very large extent uh, uh, my knowledge on uh, political philosophy and, and social philosophy. What I learned from Ayn Rand uh, is mainly uh, concerns the subject of individual rights, freedom, and government and to some extent, epistemology. But I can not claim to understand her epistemology as well as her politics.
2: Right,
1: right. Uh, But I, I consider myself, uh, I, I think of her as my intellectual mother and Mises as my intellectual father.
2: Okay. Can, Tom, I, can, can, I, can I ask a, a question? Sorry, it's Tom here and his co-host. Um, there's, there's some people... Uh, I mean, I like yourself. I, I enjoyed Atlas Shrugged and I, I, actually Anthem is one of my, my favorite, uh, favorite reads and one of her favorite works by her. But some of the people who level criticism at her, um, make the suggestion that she was running something akin to a cult at some point or was rather cultic in the way that, that she behaved or the way she ran that group. Is that fair or unfair in your, in your view or is it overstated?
1: What would you say to that? Well, there was a cultish aspect. Right. And, uh, I think she uh, made a profound misjudgment uh, in in having a relationship with Nathaniel Brandon that uh, blew up in her face eventually. Okay. And, uh, it, 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 the situation there was not was not completely right. Hmm.
2: Hmm.
0: Hmm. And so you said uh, her way of arguing was to argue by reductio ad absurdum. She made you take. Uh, she
1: she drew out the consequences of your position. Well, and... I won't. I won't say it was. I won't say her method was reductio ad absurdum. I mean, she used that sometimes. Right. But. Uh, she she came up with uh, with a very very different perspective and uh, w- uh, one that uh, initially didn't seem uh, all that convincing. But as you went into it further, it had greater and greater depth and power. Yes, she was very thorough um, in her analysis.
0: So um, and and did you see her many times after the publication of um, Atlas, or was that just? Your last detail. Well, for a,
1: no, uh, I, I saw her fairly frequently. Uh, there was a group uh, that had the nickname "the collective." Right. It was about a, twelve or thirteen people that met uh, for, for certain periods uh, every Saturday evening, uh, either in her apartment or Brandon's apartment or or uh, someone else the apartment of someone else in the group. And I, take it, I take it that was
2: knowingly ironic to call it the, the collective.
1: Yeah. <laughs> so um, so uh, that had a substantial influence on me, just uh, uh, listening to her views on one subject after another. And uh, there was a series of 20 lectures that Brandon gave uh, on uh, introduction to philosophy, uh, to objectivism. Uh, and uh, that was uh, written largely with her uh, uh, editing, and so that was very informative, too. But the, but, and also her non-fiction essays, uh, her essay on uh, rights and uh, the nature of government, uh, they're absolutely outstanding, and I think uh, everyone should read them. She has the clearest exposition of the concept of freedom, the most powerful exposition that you can find anywhere. Uh, Mises, unfortunately, is uh, is not that clear on the subject of freedom. Right. Uh, in, in, in his third edition of Human Action uh, improved his treatment of the subject. I, I think that was uh, under the influence of Ayn Rand, so he absorbed some of her ideas. Oh, very good.
0: He, abs- he absorbed some of Rand's ideas. And um, was his relationship to you pure um, prof- professional as um, your... Supervisor
1: for Mm -hmm. your Ph.D., your mentor? Uh, Mises was my mentor, yes. Um, But we didn't have uh, discussions Mm. uh, about what I was doing. Uh, I uh, worked and worked, uh, and my Ph.D. dissertation was called The Theory of Originary Interest. Mm. And uh, it was 640 double-spaced type pages and I handed it in, and uh, there were, uh, I think altogether, he, him, and uh, two other members of my reading committee, and one of them rejected it. Wow. and uh, so at that at that point, I, I had to radically reduce the thesis. It, it was originally 640 pages. Uh, one day I may publish it. I have it set up in PDF format. Mm all typeset and all and uh, I eliminated uh, everything I think uh, except one large chapter and I, uh, I wrote a new 30 page introduction and uh, maybe a new 30 page conclusion and uh, finally the response of the troublemaking committee member was uh, well he read it, uh, he liked it much better except uh, for the uh, first 30 pages and he hadn't read the last 30
2: uh-huh.
1: so he, he managed to like the same thing he had rejected <laughs> and I, it was at that time that I uh, changed uh, from the term originary interest and I uh, went to the term profit
2: right.
1: I think I think profit is the, the, the more appropriate term and that's a source of friction between me and uh, most of the other Austrians. Right. Would you like to um,
0: explain the uh, friction, the difference in opinion?
1: Well, the main thing I would like to explain is, uh, it'll be be apparent, I think, in my critique of uh, the framework of the Marxian exploitation theory, because that's what I consider the greatest error in the history of economic thought. You know, Adam Smith is usually uh, blamed... It's usually denounced as a, a, a proto-Marxist uh, because of the labor theory of value and the iron law of wages. The, the iron law of wages being the doctrine that wages tend toward minimum subsistence. That's right, and now,
0: history seems to disprove that
1: fact since wages have right. increased in real terms. All right. Well Now, the iron law of wages is certainly incorrect, and the labor theory of value is incorrect, but the main error of the, exploitation, of the exploitation theory is neither the labor theory of value nor the iron law of wages, but its framework. And its framework is that the original form of income is wages. Uh, Adam Smith postulates what he calls the original state of things. And in this original state of things, there are supposedly manual workers uh, who are producing and selling products. There are no capitalists. Uh, Capital has not yet been accumulated. Uh, So these manual workers somehow without any capital are producing and selling products. And Smith argues that uh, in this state, uh, all uh, the whole produce belongs to the laborer.
0: Uh,
1: Here he says, in that original state of things, I'm quoting now from The Wealth of Nations. I think it's the chapter on wages. In that original state of things, which precedes both the appropriation of land and the accumulation of stock, but which meant capital. The whole produce of labor belongs to the laborer. He has neither landlord nor master to share with him.
2: Mm.
1: And then he goes on, had this state continued the wages of labor would have augmented with all those improvements in its productive powers to which the division of labor gives occasion. And then he goes on uh, to claim that uh, uh, first land rent is a deduction from what uh, naturally, rightfully, originally was wages, then the profits uh, of the uh, capitalists uh, in the land, and finally he says, uh, the uh, the produce of almost all other labor, besides agricultural labor, is liable to the like deduction of profit. In all arts and manufactures, the greater part of the workmen stand in need of a master employer to advance them the materials of their work and their wages and maintenance till it be completed. He shares in the produce of their labor or in the value which it adds to the materials on which it is bestowed, and in this share consists his profit. So this is the fundamental framework of the exploitation theory, that wages are the original primary Mm -hmm. rightful income, and then later when capitalists appear and profit uh, appears, the profit is a deduction from what naturally rightfully and originally was all wages and that's what i call the greatest error in the history of economic thought because no. if we look carefully and here let me i have to uh, make reference to another major proposition of classical economics uh, advanced this one advanced by john stuart mill and it's known as demand for commodities is not demand for labor And Mill argues, when you buy a commodity, the produce of labor, you are not paying wages. Mm. That wages are paid before the the product is produced, not in the purchase of the product. And that is a profound truth. And the full title of my article is uh, Rectifying uh, the Greatest Error in the History of Economic Thought, Uh, John Stuart Mill's Demand for Commodities is Not Demand for Labor, Versus the framework of the Marxian Exploitation Theory. because Let's look at this a little closely. If we've got workers producing and selling products, the money they receive is not wages. Wages is money paid in exchange for the performance of labor. Not for the products of labor, but for the performance of labor itself. And if you pay wages, you don't have to pay for the product. You own the product by having paid the wages. Consider, Imagine, for example, uh, you hired a housekeeper and you gave her money uh, to buy food and so forth. And now she's serving you dinner. Would you be presented with a check for dinner? No. No, no. and why not? Because you already own the dinner since you paid for the labor and everything else necessary to uh, produce the, materi- the, uh, the, the product. Yeah. If you, in fact, buy the inputs, you do not buy the output. You already own the output. Mm. If you buy the output, it's because you have not bought the inputs. Now, these workers in Adam Smith's original state of things uh, were producing and selling products or to whatever extent they were producing and selling products. Maybe the products might only have been a rock and a stick. And Smith himself gives such an example. He refers to Scotch pebbles. Uh, There were a group of people in Scotland who were gathering pebbles from the seashore and they're selling the pebbles. And Smith assumed that when they sold the pebbles, they were being paid wages. They weren't. They were being paid a sales revenue, a product sales revenue. Mm -hmm. So the first point to realize is that in the original state of things, the money the workers were paid was product sales revenues, not wages. There were no wages. Mm -hmm. Now, because there were no capitalists, a capitalist, according to Smith and also to Marx, is someone who buys for the sake of selling. Well, there were no capitalists. Now costs, the phenomenon of costs that are deducted from sales revenues is the result of capitalistic expenditure. You know, uh, I I should have pointed out already that Marx took over this framework completely, Mm -hmm. and Marx distinguished between what he called simple circulation and capitalistic circulation. Simple circulation is a replica of Smith's uh, original state of things. Mm. Simple circulation is described by the sequence CMC, commodity, money, commodity. The workers are producing commodities, C. They're selling the commodities for money, M. Mm. And then they're using the money to buy other commodities, CMC. Okay, That's simple circulation.
2: Mm.
1: Now, capitalistic circulation is... M- money, commodity, money. Hmm. The capitalist lays out money, M, produces, has the workers produce a commodity, C, which is then sold for a larger sum of money, M prime. Right.
0: Which he thought was okay, to.
1: Yeah, that's, what, and that's where exp- exploitation came in. That's where profit came in. And it came in as a deduction from what was originally, naturally, and right for the old wages. Now, the joke is... That in CMC and Smith's, early, uh, Smith's original state of things, there are no wages, There's sales revenues, and because there's no capitalistic expenditure, no buying for the sake of subsequently selling, there are no costs. A cost that appears in a business income statement represents money that has been previously expended for the purpose of producing the product that is going to be sold. It's the initial M. Mm. costs including wages are found in the initial m in the mcm sequence now if there are no capitalists no m it's just cmc the only income is profit the income of the workers in smith's early and rude state of society his original state of things their income is not wages but profit profit is the original primary labor income And what the capitalists are responsible for is not the phenomenon of profit, since that's already there without them. They're responsible for the phenomena of wages paid in production and the other expenditures that show up as costs. So capitalists are responsible uh, not for creating profit and deducting it from wages, but for creating wages and other costs, which serve to reduce the proportion of sales that is profit. The capitalists create wages and reduce the proportion of sales that is profit. It's the exact opposite.
0: Right, right, yes. And um, it's interesting because if you take the view that um, capitalists are just skimming something off the top, just skimming... pro. um, um, a little profit off the top and exploiting the workers. Why aren't the workers uh, going to the bank and buying over the factory, and kicking out the capitalists to sell, sir, save on a twelve percent profit margin, and deliver a cheaper product? Obviously, the capitalists must be providing some value to the workers; otherwise, they would just be self-employed instead. They would make more money being self-employed. Yeah,
1: they're the capital- making more money. They're making more money as wage earners working for the capitalists than they would as sellers of products. Right. They're making uh, h- higher wages than they would profits. Okay, so that's, this might that's have been
0: point. quite a heavy um, rundown, so let's just review very quickly. You start with the point that Adam Smith was mistaken in that he thought the, in the original state of affairs, when people are just producing products, they are creating uh, wages for themselves. Um, Then a capitalist comes along and employs them, and suddenly um, this concept of surplus value emerges, eh, not from Adam Smith, but from Marx, which is that the capitalist is actually skimming off the top, a surplus value, something that should otherwise be the rightful property of the workers, that he's just and um, exploiting them. It's interesting to note that you mentioned that Adam Smith, because he's widely considered to be a free marketeer and, a, and an advocate he is in of, of is in, in, many, in
1: many ways he is. He, he, see Adam Smith is a very mixed case. Yeah. This is the worst error in the history of economic thought. But in other respects, uh, like it's not from benevolence but from self-interest, that we expect uh, to to get things from other people yeah. yes and i think we can
0: say that adam smith uh, uh, didn't have the benefit of adam smith when he was coming up with his theories
1: well uh, you could argue that that's a, that's a legitimate point but the main point is that uh smith has a, 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 a confusion he thinks that wages and labor are indissolubly connected or or, uh, inseparably connected, when in fact profit is the original labor income. Profit was the income of the manual workers in the original state of things. They had sales revenues, but they didn't have costs. Why didn't they have costs? Because they hadn't acted capitalistically. They hadn't expended any money for the purpose of bringing in their sales revenues. So there were sales revenues, but zero costs. A hundred percent of the sales revenues were profit. Then when capitalists appear, expenditure for means of production, including the payment of wages, begin. So the capitalists are responsible not for the phenomenon of profit, which exists before them, but for the phenomenon of wages and the other costs of production. And it serves to reduce the proportion of sales that is profit. Now, the next question is, what about later on, after we're out of uh, the original state of things and into uh, more modern conditions? Uh, What is the status of profit in those conditions? I would say profit is still a labor income, but the labor is more and more of an intellectual character. And the uh, profits, you know, Smith rejected the idea that profit could be a labor income Mm. uh, because he uh, realized that profit varies with the amount of capital invested. It tends to be larger on a larger capital and smaller on a smaller capital. And uh, that does not contradict the fact that profits are a labor income because they're an an income of intellectual labor, of thinking and planning and Mm decision-making. So if you have more capital rather than less, you apply your ideas on a larger scale. If you uh, own one shoe store and you have an improved idea, uh, or if you own 10 shoe stores, you can apply that idea on 10 times the scale, and you should expect to be able to make Mm -hmm. on the order of 10 times the profit. Now, the fact that the profits can vary with the capital and and do not have to vary exclusively with the labor, that does not mean they're not a labor income. uh, A labor income varies with the means it employs. Like if we were looking at two workers digging a hole, one with an ordinary shovel and one with a steam shovel, the one with the steam shovel would expect to have a much larger hole. Yeah. But does that mean that the whole is not the product of labor?
2: Right. Uh,
1: the whole, the products are always the result of labor, even though the product varies with the the power and efficiency of the means employed. Now, Adam Smith uh, failed to realize this, mm-hmm. and I parody him uh, on this subject. Uh, uh, you know, he gives an example of uh, uh, firms with two different capitals. Uh, One with 700 pounds, I think, and another with 7,300 (laughs) pounds. And he says, though uh, their profits are so very different, this labor of inspection and direction, as he called it, may be either altogether or very nearly the same. Well, that's true of a worker with a shovel and a worker with a steam shovel. Mm. But in both cases, they're still the products of labor.
0: Right. So
1: what I would say is, the fundamental producer, let's say in the old Ford Motor Company or Standard Oil, that's primarily the product of Ford and Rockefeller. The guys on the assembly line are the help. Yes. But the fundamental producer is the capitalist who's uh, laying out the plans and the organization and uh, further uh, you know the marxists are complaining mm. uh, they they want the labor's right to the whole produce right yeah. they want well that that right is realized every day in capitalism mm. when business firms and businessmen are paid for the products the products are their products mm. not the products of the guys on the assembly line the yeah, guys right. on the assembly line are the help in the production of the capitalist yeah. product Now, let me give you a further application of this principle. Why is it that we normally say that Columbus discovered America, or Napoleon won the Battle of Austerlitz, or that the President of the United States has a foreign policy? Why do we credit the discovery of America to Columbus and not to the members of his crew, uh, Seaman Giuseppe, uh, Seaman Juan, first mate uh, Pedro, or whatever? Why Columbus? Because Columbus provided the guiding, directing intelligence mm-hmm. at yeah. the highest level. Yes, he's the prime and it's him, Right, it's to him that we attribute the product, and the other guys are the help in the realization of Columbus's discovery. And similarly, uh, with Napoleon at Austerlitz, Napoleon provided the guiding, directing strategy at the highest level. Right. And, uh, uh, okay. So, so to quote Rand,
0: more or less, the the original means of production is the human mind.
1: Right, and it's still the human mind, and the human mind employs means of production, which uh, enable it to accomplish results in the real world. And the the greater the capital, uh, the larger the scale on which you can apply your ideas. Uh, you can uh, uh, yeah. uh, employ helpers, equip them. But it's your product.
0: Right. And I would just like to to add a point on that, George, because this is often yeah. thought by critics of capitalism to be some form of greed where those who accumulate wealth can accumulate more wealth without contributing their labor. But I think it's important to realize no, that this isn't just good from our individualist perspective, which it is, which means if you've got good ideas, you make good money. But it also... uh, performs a really important social function in the economy, which is that people who are shrewd in using resources accumulate more resources to shepherd. And those who make bad plans and make bad decisions with their investments, they lose that capital. So this system of investment of profit and loss, shepherds... um, capital into the hands of those who are good at predicting what the market, which is you, me, Tom, and everyone listening, want to buy. Because why do you want people who are not good at predicting what we want to be in charge of large stacks of resources? The better you are at serving the market, the more resources you get to shepherd towards productive ends.
1: Yeah, that's certainly true. And uh, you know this connects with further points. Uh, you know, you know, people have no idea uh, about how private property actually operates. Yeah. Um, they don't realize that you benefit. You don't have to own something to benefit from it. That's so true. You don't have to own the steel mills and the iron mines and the auto plants to get the benefit. You get the benefit when you buy the product. When you buy an automobile, you're getting the benefit of the auto plant that produced it. You're Mm -hmm. getting the benefit of the steel mill that produced the steel that goes to the automobile and of the iron mine and so on. So we get the benefit of capital in our capacity as consumers and in our capacity as wage earners because uh, the privately owned means of production are the source, A, of the supply of products and B, of the demand for labor. So that, we have that twofold general benefit. Okay, George, can I just
2: ask you? Uh, Sorry, I just want to clear something. In your view, what was it that, why did Smith make that mistake? What was it he missed? Why,
1: or why did he miss it? Because I think he fused the concept of uh, wages and labor together. Okay. Okay. He thought, wherever there is labor, the income is wages.
0: Okay. Right.
1: And, and everyone has followed him in that. Right, but right. if you look at matters from the perspective of business accounting you've got sales revenues not wages and if you if you have no capitalists you have no monetary costs so the entirety of the sales revenues is profit okay now uh, I I wish I could have uh, I could go back in a time machine um, and, and have a talk with Adam Smith yes, yes or if I missed Adam Smith talk to uh, to john Stuart mill mm. because his proposition demand for commodities is not demand for labor implies uh, just about everything i'm saying
0: yeah. right right so you um, explicated from that original idea so i i wanted yeah. to dovetail some of your points one more. Oh, let me
1: just say i deal with this at great length in my book and capitalism a treatise on economics which people can get from capitalism.net Right, and also they can get a Kindle version, the hard copy version is $95, but the Kindle version is $9.99. Right, and it is a mighty tome, very educational,
0: it's very comprehensive.
1: And, and on my website, uh, you could download a PDF replica of the, of the hard copy, and at present there's no, no charge on that, you're welcome to download a copy.
2: Excellent.
1: It's Excellent. fully searchable. The contents are linked, hyperlinked to uh, every section in the in the contents. So, uh, I I think this is a, a revolutionary idea. Uh, I uh, unfortunately my experience is that hardly anyone understands it. Right. I don't know why. It seems very right. simple to me. Okay. Right. So, so he, not everybody's a professor, George. <laughs> No, but grammar
0: school students should be able to understand. Okay. Yes, if it's okay. demonstrated, and that's uh, a frustration to me as an economics enthusiast. You know, so many of our ideas are perceived as uh, impenetrable, but readily understandable when you when they're well explained. So, for example, you were mentioning the fact that people don't need to own something to benefit from this, and I believe that's the insight that I I think I got it from Mises, uh, which was that. One of Marx's major errors was that he only saw people in their capacity as producers. Yes. But he didn't take into consideration their role as consumers. So as the capitalist industrialization takes place, more machines are invented, things get cheaper and cheaper, those labourers may be on the same wage, but that wage can buy more stuff. So they're effectively richer in real terms. They're richer in real terms. That's
1: true. That's true, and and the real wages rise, not by virtue of people earning more money, but by virtue of the productivity of labour rising. The productivity of labour is the output per worker. The higher the average output per worker the larger is the supply of goods relative to the supply of labor, and therefore the cheaper are, the, are goods relative to, to labor. So, That's not recognized. So if but also we have to say, what, what Marx, pardon me? And please finish your point first. Yeah. I. What Marx also held, uh, he claimed with the Iron Law of Wages that if you could reduce the price of the workers' necessities, the capitalists would immediately follow that up by slashing wages, that the capitalists have total arbitrary power over uh, wages. But that's not true. Uh, labor, uh, Labor is scarce, and it's required in the production of everything. There is a greater implicit desire for labor than there is labor. Labor is fundamentally scarce. What causes unemployment is not that we don't need the labor, but that it's overpriced. And as wage rates fall, the quantity of labor demanded grows. And under capitalism, wage rates fall no lower than to the full employment point. And once wage rates uh, hit the full employment point, occupation by occupation, uh, location by location, the the self-interest of the capitalists uh, dictates raising wages. We have to think of it in terms of an auction. Um, Suppose uh, you're at an auction. You want to you want to buy um, the the first edition of my book. Right. Okay. Now uh, you're willing or or a a painting, a painting, some beautiful painting you want. Let's say you're willing and able to uh, spend up to two thousand dollars to buy this painting. There's someone else who's willing and able to spend up to one thousand dollars to buy the painting. Now you'd rather get the painting for less than two thousand. You don't want to spend your maximum. Mm. You'd rather get it for one thousand than two thousand. You'd rather mm-hmm. get it for five hundred than a yeah. thousand. You'd rather get it for nothing at all. all right. What happens if the bidding starts and you insisted on bidding no more than nine hundred dollars? But there's yeah. someone else who's willing and able to pay up to a thousand. Yeah. Then he would get it. Yeah. So what is your self what is your rational self interest require? Is it to seek to pay the lowest price you'd like or could imagine? Or rather to pay the lowest price that is simultaneously too high for your next nearest bidder.
2: Yeah. That's that's what you want. Your self
1: interest is to pay not the lowest price you'd like, Mm. but the lowest price above a thousand dollars that's the maximum bid of your next nearest bidder well it's the same with employers it's just instead of one unit of of supply being available there are millions and tens of millions Mm. but still uh, if the price if the wage goes below the full employment point so that uh, there are employers able and willing to pay more but the labor they want is being snatched up by other employers not able to pay as much Right. Well, what what does their self-interest dictate? They
0: have to raise wages.
1: They yeah. must raise wages. They must knock out the competition of the uh, less uh, c- capable employers, the less uh, uh, payment uh, capable employers. Yeah, so f- and that's what happens. Yeah. When there is a labor shortage, employers will conspire with the workers to break the law. If you have wage controls and there's a labor shortage. Employers will give out phony promotions as a means of raising wages. Mm. Yeah. So fundamentally, you you can't
0: pay someone much less than someone else is willing to pay them. And uh, so fundamentally, the wage that someone accepts is not an arbitrary sum set by the capitalist, but uh, um, arrived at by the laws of supply and demand. Um, If you gain more skills, you're liable to command a higher wage.
1: And, and yeah, if if you have a free labor market, if you have a free yeah,
0: labor market, right. that's true. That's true. Because
1: then, if there's unemployment, wages go down, but they stop going down when the the full employment point is hit. Yeah. Occupation, but one occupation at a time. Like full employment for carpenters in Des Moines, that stops the further fall in wages of carpenters in Des Moines. Right. So you don't have to have full employment across the whole economy for this to work. It works. Occupation by occupation, location by location. Right. So what are, it's to the You see, uh, what people are walking around with, they have the idea, well, the workers need their wages. They hmm. must work or they'll hmm. starve. And employers are greedy. Hmm. So they have, they think of this combination of worker need and employer greed, and they think uh, put the two of them together, and wages go to the floor. They'll go to the subsistence or less than subsistence. But the reality is, the need of workers is irrelevant to the wages they actually have to accept. And an example I give of this is, imagine that you had uh, a late model car, Uh, but you're committed now to take a job. Uh, I I use the example of uh, Manhattan Island in New York City. I imagine it's the same in London. Suppose here you are, you're living in Scotland, you own a car, and it's no problem to to park it and garage it and whatever. But if you were to move into a densely populated city, uh, you have a very big expense to yeah. garage the car yeah. or else spend half your life looking for a parking spot. And if you can't do that, you must get rid of the car. How much would you be willing to sell it for? Well,
2: it's for, for as, as high a price as I possibly could come on. Possibly. <laughs>
1: How much would you be willing to take? What would be the lowest you'd be willing to take? You, mu- you can't keep the car. You're going to London or wherever. You must right. get rid of the car. Right. So I would say you'd be willing, if necessary, if there were yeah, no alternative, yeah. Yeah, sure. you'd pay to call a tow truck to take yeah. it away to the junkyard.
0: <laughs> okay. Right.
1: Yeah. Yeah, okay, but you don't have to do that. Why don't you have to do that? Because late model used cars are scarce and right. valuable. People want them. So there's a market in those cars and you can sell your car at the prevailing market price for such cars even though you're willing to sell it for nothing or pay to have it taken off your hands that's irrelevant. In the same way the willingness of workers to work for minimum subsistence if they had no alternative that's irrelevant. Wages are determined by the competition of the employers for scarce labor.
2: Yeah. Right.
1: Now so the Worker need is irrelevant to wages. Yeah. And Now, what about employer greed? Well, we've just covered that a few minutes ago. Sure. Employer greed, you know, the self-interest of the employers, again, is not the lowest wages they would like, but the lowest wages that are simultaneously too high for other potential employers uh, to pay.
2: Yeah.
1: So, so why, in your opinion, so, George,
2: does, does this myth persist though, of the drive to the bottom? Me? Why did? If, I mean, the, this this would seem straightforward, but why does the myth of this, the drive to the bottom, the idea that the you know, wages will go down, why does that persist?
1: Why why does the idea that wages yeah. go to the minimum subsistence level?
2: Yeah, yeah.
1: Okay. All right. Because. Uh, it's a mistaken thought I mean why yeah. why does any wrong idea persist? yeah mm. yeah yeah now well, we don't have we don't have the enough we don't have very much experience with the full employment and tight labor markets. Mm. Uh, they've existed in wartime when there are wage controls. yeah when the government on the one side is pouring in new and additional money and on the other controlling wages and prices, yeah. then you get a labor shortage, and then employers, to uh, beat the wage controls will give out phony promotions uh, as a means of raising mm. wages.
2: Right.
1: But now, if if we had a free labor market and wages, money wages were lower than where they are now, yeah. but the labor market was tight and this was the normal experience, then people would see yeah. that wages do not tend to go to subsistence. Go ahead. They get further and further above subsistence and it happens by virtue of um, the, the businessmen and capitalists continually introducing newer, better products and lower cost, more efficient methods of production.
2: Right.
1: Now, I, I go into all of this in great yeah. detail in capitalism. Uh, the matters we've been discussing t- today are, are treated mainly in chapters 11 and 14. Right. Uh, 11 is uh, the division of labor and the concept of productive activity and 14 is the productivity theory of wages. Okay. So if you were to
0: um, just explicate quite uh, briefly what the uh, Marxian exploitation theory is in short, how would you put it?
1: Well, it starts off with the idea that uh, wages are the original just form of income, that when capitalists appear, they uh, deduct profits, uh, interest, land rent, they deduct all income wages, and that's what they pocket, and that's the exploitation. And At the same time, uh, the Marxists have this uh, absolutist view of the labor theory of value. They, they have the, Marx, the labor theory of value in Marxism is different than in classical economics. Mm, right. The, the Marx, Marxian view is an insane version. So they argue the basis of profit, according to the Marxists, is that the worker can produce a larger output than is required to sustain himself and enable him to work. Yeah. Uh, uh, the the and you know you've heard the expression wage slave. Yeah. And they say they say that capitalism is slavery. <clears throat> well, that's how they see it. Because uh, ask yourself what is it that enables the slave owner to gain from owning a slave it's the fact that if the slave is doing a full day's work mm-hmm. he can produce more in that day's work than is required to maintain himself yeah,
0: yeah. Okay. It, so
1: and that's what the Marxists are claiming uh, the Marxists uh, Marx's own example is he imagines that the working day is 12 hours but the wage earner only needs the products of the labor of six hours to live
2: mm-hmm.
1: so uh, the, the capitalist gains six hours of surplus labor time six hours of labor time over and above what's required to support the worker and the worker is in the same position as a slave the master gains from a slave because the slave can produce more than is required to maintain the slave and that's the position that Marx right. says the worker is in under capitalism. And it always amazes me
0: that uh, Marxists seem to think taking a job and being up, paid a wage which is voluntary is somehow exploitative, but uh, being forced to pay taxes which is not voluntary is not exploitative. It seems like a, a crazy measuring stick. Um, I was also reminded of the point raised by Bon Barwerk, that the capitalist puts up front... the. Um, gets paid last, he puts up front the money at the beginning, and if there's a profit, right, he right. gets paid. <clears throat> so actually he's being paid for the time value of money. The, the, all the wage labourers, they get paid right away, up front, whereas um, he's unburdening them of having to produce something, that's then but, sell it. They get paid as they produce.
1: Bob critique of Marx is uh, truly ingenious. Mm. But, unfortunately, he's accepting the, uh, the the framework of the exploitation theory right. well, because he's imagining yeah. that the uh, wage earner is the primary producer and that his income would be wages. Now, if, in fact, we had, uh, you see, Bombavik is imagining uh, one worker is producing materials that the next worker converts into uh, 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 s- steel parts, a third worker is uh, assembling it into an engine. Uh, he's got five workers in his mm-hmm. example, but if we had an arrangement like that, uh, the income that these workers would be earning would not be wages, but profit. Right. They're producing a finished engine in five years. They would have sales revenues, but there's no money costs, right. and so they would have to divide profit, and the the capitalist is the one who introduces the wages. He's responsible for the phenomenon of wages.
0: Right, so when we discussed Adam Smith, you mentioned that in many ways he's a free market economist, but he had some bad yeah. ideas thrown in. He had a
1: horrible idea. This is this is really an awful, awful idea, the, the primacy of wages, that and, wages and, are the first income.
0: And being a great intellectual and a forerunner, many people accepted that idea blindly. Now here's a more uh, interesting, controversial question. Do you think that Marx had any good original ideas? Well,
1: uh, he has one, one idea that can be used, one useful idea, and that is uh, uh, his idea of capitalistic circulation, MCM prime, mm. uh, can be used uh, to uh, represent the economic degree of capitalism. How capitalistic is the, is the system economically? Now, in Smith's original... The way we can do it is we divide the first M by the second M. M over M prime. That represents the economic degree of capitalism. In Smith's original state of things, the first M is zero. So we have zero over M. The system is not economically capitalistic at all. The more economically capitalistic is the system... The higher is M over M-prime, that means wages are going to be uh, higher relative to profits. The first M is the costs. The second M is the sales revenues. The higher are costs relative to sales revenues, uh, the more economically capitalistic the system is. You have to apply this proposition on the basis of the whole economic system, not on the basis of, of an individual industry which is in competition with all the others. But the system as a whole is the more economically capitalistic, the higher is the buying of the means of production relative to the sales. And now uh, the, the higher is, is M over M prime. Not only are wages higher relative to profits, which is the difference mm-hmm. between the two M's, but the larger will production be and the more rapidly rising because the higher is the demand for capital goods, the demand for machinery, materials, etc., which is which along with wages is included in the first M. The, the money being outlaid is to pay wages and to buy materials and machinery. The higher is the expenditure for materials and machinery relative to the expenditure for consumer goods, the more the economy concentrates on capital goods, the larger will be the supply of capital goods and the more rapidly growing it will be which means the the more rapidly growing the higher and more rapidly growing will be the productivity of labor. So as the system becomes more economically capitalistic more m relative to m prime the wage share of national income becomes larger and real wages rise yeah. because prices fall and continue to fall relative to wages. So I go into that in great detail in chapter fourteen.
0: Of okay, Capitalism. great.
1: So I just want to
0: say a little bit about theories of value before we go, because yeah, you, you're um, the labor theory of value. Um, I mean, if the Marxian view is correct, then we can pay some people to dig a hole and then pay some other people to fill up that hole again, and they've apparently created some value because there's labor.
1: No. No. Yeah. Yeah. No. And uh,
0: um, so uh, is that is that an unfair categorization of the labor theory of value?
1: Well, it depends. Um, in that form, Marx talks about socially necessary labor. Right. That uh, the value of products reflects the amount of labor that is socially necessary. As seen by whom? So, uh, well, uh, or seen by him, or we, we can concede that point that uh, yeah, yeah. if if in, there's no reason to uh, dig a hole and then fill it up again, right. uh, but it is true that in his theory, uh, that w- should make the thing more valuable. Uh, Marx, see, Marx ignores everything else besides labor. Right. Okay. Ricardo was very different. Ricardo uh, acknowledged the time factor and the rate of profit and also uh, all kinds of individual scarcities. Uh, I don't know if you've read Ricardo, but he has a statement uh, scarce uh, books and coins, oh, paintings by old masters, whatever. Their value has absolutely nothing to do with the quantity of labor required to produce right, them, right. and was expended in producing them. Uh, and also, I'm sorry?
0: I, I'm just saying he noticed that they were valuable because they were scarce rather than because.
1: Yeah, they were scarce, and there was, th- their value was determined by their utility. And Ricardo would have agreed marginal utility had he been aware of the concept. Right, yes, yeah, so the, so that. Okay. Yeah. Okay, now, uh, also, uh, Ricardo recognized that we could have two products of identically the same amount of labor, but to the extent that some of the labor was employed further back in the past, the product would be more valuable, uh, and he gives an example like this: uh, Suppose we have a product. You have to spend a thousand pounds in wages to produce the product, and the product, uh, the rate of profit is ten percent. All right, how much does the product sell for? Eleven hundred pounds. Now suppose we we take half of the labor and employ it two years back. We spend five hundred dollars, a five hundred pounds. Uh, on a quantity of labor. Then the following year we spend another 500 pounds to buy a, an, equ- an equivalent amount of labor and the rate of profit is 10%. How much will that product sell for? We have 500. Uh, you have to allow 10% so that the product was, w- w- would be worth 5, 550. Then we have 500 more in wages. Mm-hmm. The total cost of this product is 1050. 1050 pounds what will it sell for well it's 10% of 1050 it'll sell for 1155 so and now you can get more extreme suppose we have uh, an equal quantity of labor employed in the production of 40 year old scotch uh, versus that same quantity of labor employed in uh, the production of a product that'll be ready next year well, if the rate of profit is 10 percent, the one product will be worth a thousand times 1.1, and the other will be worth a thousand times 1.1 to the 40th. Okay. So, uh, Ricardo was excellent on these kinds of cases,
2: mm.
1: and also, if the rate of profit changes, it's going to change the relative values. So Ricardo saw that. Uh, it's wrong to to think of Ricardo as a Marxian. Uh, is very different. So, and also, uh, you see, Marx believed in the iron law of wages, that wages would go to subsistence. Yeah. Now, there was a sense in which Ricardo believed that, too, uh, insofar as he thought population growth would require uh, taking uh, poorer and poorer land into cultivation mm-hmm. and cultivating the existing land ever more intensively. Well, uh, if that were the, if those were the facts, uh, wages would be falling, Mm -hmm. and they would hit subsistence. But if you have economic progress, as we had, then uh, there is no tendency for the productivity of labor in agriculture to fall. In fact, it's risen so much that a great deal of land was thrown out of cultivation. There's a lot of land in Britain that was cultivated back in the 18th century Mm -hmm. that stopped being cultivated later in the 19th century because uh, supplies of American grain could be imported much cheaper. uh, So you had the return to pasture. And With modern technology, we keep improving the productivity of labor in agriculture and everywhere else. So there's no possibility of the uh, so-called iron law of wages working by that dimension. But Marx, his iron law of wages was not the, uh, the fact that you'd have diminishing returns and the need to uh, cultivate ever inferior grades of land. He, his version of the iron law of wages is the capitalist just arbitrarily puts the wages at minimum subsistence. Right, right.
0: because he, so, has, he has the power to do that, um, that's the, that's yeah. the mistaken so, idea.
1: Right. So, the, we, we, one of the things I try to do in my book is uh, dehomogenize Marx and classical economics. They are very, very different. Right. The right. classical right. economists, w- whatever their errors, they had great, magnificent things to say. And the the Austrians uh, ignore them at their peril. Right. Right. And um, you've you've kind of sieved
0: out the bad ideas and kept kept the good ideas.
1: Right. I, I think there's one there's one basic line of thought in economics and, and it includes the classical economists and the Austrian economists. Yes. It runs from Smith or a little bit earlier with the physiocrats and goes to Mises and hopefully beyond. Just before we finish up, I would like to ask yeah. um,
0: one more question then because we know what the incorrect idea regarding um, value is. What is, the, what is the correct idea regarding value? Like, how is the value of commodities or anything arrived at?
1: Okay, it's arrived at, uh, we start with demand and supply, but demand and supply work mainly in broad factor markets. Demand and supply are at work in determining wages, wage rates, uh, the prices of certain uh, in basic industrial commodities that uh, can be produced only in, in limited quantities. Uh, it's at work in determining the prices of uh, uh, rare goods like uh, uh, paintings by old masters uh, and, and so forth. But uh, the the great bulk of prices are determined on the basis of cost of production. Uh, the, the, the that does and the the costs of production are themselves determined ultimately by demand and supply. Wages are determined by demand and supply. That's the most important element in costs of
0: production
1: okay. um, Land ag, prices of land are determined by demand and supply yeah. but most uh, most uh, regularly produced commodities, are determined by cost of production and interestingly bohm and Wieser recognize this Uh, I'd like to give you a a reference on this subject because it's very important it's in my book Um, there's an article by bohm that was uh, reprinted in the Journal of Austrian Economics uh, some years ago toward the beginning of the century called Ricardo and bohm on cost of production Versus the elasticity of demand. Okay, okay. On page 414 in my book, there's a lengthy uh, paragraph here. You mind if I start reading it? This is a quotation from Bombavar. Sure, sure, go
2: for
1: it. Uh, Let us alter the order of the presuppositions of our typical example accordingly. Uh, Someone possesses a rather large supply of means of production of second order, G2, G sub two. From each of these groups, he can produce at will a consumption good of the category A or one of the category B or finally of category C. He desires, of course, to take advanced measures toward balanced provision for his various wants and will therefore draw simultaneously on various parts of his supply of means of production to produce consumption goods of all three categories, and he will produce amounts in each in accordance with his needs. If there, is, uh, uh, if there is genuinely balanced provision, the quantities produced will be so regulated that needs of approximately equal importance depend upon the last specimen in each category, and that thus the marginal utilities are approximately equal. In spite of that, it is not impossible that there will be differences, possibly even quite considerable differences in the marginal utilities, because as we already know, the graduation of concrete wants occurring in any one category is not always either uniform or continuous." now he goes on, if under all circumstances, the marginal utility attainable by a good within its own category were determinative, determinative of its value, then the categories B and C would have to receive a value divergent not only from that of category A, but also from the value of its costs, uh, G2. B would then have a value of 120, C a value of 200. But here we are confronted with one of the cases where through substitution, a possible loss in one category is transferred to another. And as a result, the marginal utility of the latter becomes determinative for the other as well. Thus, if a specimen of category C is lost, it is not necessary to forego the marginal utility of 200, which the specimen would have delivered directly. Instead, it is possible to convert one unit of the means of production G2 into a new specimen C, and in its place, further uh, uh, rather produce one specimen fewer in that category in which the marginal utility, and hence the loss in utility is least. And indeed, that possibility becomes a reality. The category in question in our example is the category A. Because of the opportunity which production offers for substitution, a specimen C is therefore not valued in accordance with its own marginal utility of 200, but in accordance with the marginal utility of the least valuable related product, the product A. Its value is therefore 100. The same applies naturally to the value of category B and would apply generally to every category uh, of good which is uh, productionally related to A and of which the direct marginal utility is also greater than that of category A. This leads to some important consequences. The first is that in this way, the value of goods having a higher individual marginal utility occupies the same rank as the value of the marginal product and hence also the same rank as the means of production from which both emanate. The identity which exists in principle between value and cost therefore obtains in this instance as well. But it is to be carefully noted that here the coinciding is brought about in quite a different way from that which was followed in the case of costs and marginal products. In the latter instance, the two coincide because the value of the means of production accommodates itself to the value of the product. The value of the product is the determinant factor. The means of production is the factor that is determined. In our present case, it is the other way around, and it is the value of the product that must do the accommodating. Ultimately, it accommodates only to the value of another product, but initially it accommodates also to the value of the means of production from which it emanates and which brings about its substantial connection with the marginal product. The transmission of value proceeds, so to speak, along a broken line. First, it goes from the marginal product to the means of production. Fixes the value of the latter and then ascends in the opposite direction from the means of production to the other products, which it is possible to produce from them. In the end then, the products of higher immediate marginal utility derive their value from their means of production. Let us translate the abstract formula into terms of concrete practice. Good B or good C is, in general, a product of higher immediate marginal utility. If now we consider what good B or C is worth to us, our first response is, just exactly as much as the means of production are worth to us from which we can at any moment replace the product. If we then inquire further and ask how much the means of production themselves are worth, we arrive at the marginal utility of the marginal product. But on innumerable occasions we can spare ourselves this further inquiry. Time and again we already know the value of the good that, co- that co- of the good that comprises the cost of the goods that comprise the cost, without any necessity for working it out from its foundation and proceeding onward from case to case. And on all these occasions we simply determine the value of products by their cost, and in doing so we are taking advantage of an abbreviation. Which is as accurate as it is convenient. <clears throat> Let me try to boil that down if I can. We've got the same means of production or groups of means of production that can produce three different consumers' goods. A, B, and C. Right. Uh, let's say A is surgical sutures. Now, how, how, what is the marginal utility of having the surgical sutures available for an operation? Or the scalpel or whatever? Hmm. Right. It's as high as a life, right? Yeah. yeah. Okay, But now, suppose we have a sufficient supply of the means of production from which scalpels, sutures, whatever are produced to produce lots of other things of much, much less importance. Right. Uh, mm-hmm. Like a, a thread to sew a, a button on a, on, on a jacket. The marginal employment of these means of production is at the level of a button on the jacket.
2: Right, right. Yeah.
1: That's what determines the value of the means of production. Right. Okay. Then these other vitally important things their value is determined from the value of the means of production. Now, cost of production is never an ultimate determinant of value, but it is a determinant of value in leveling down products of supra-marginal utility to marginal utility. That's the gist of what he's saying. I yeah. it's too much in too little space. I really right. urge you to read that section, uh, that discussion, uh, right. Bombard. So, so
0: that you can really get the, the way that the or, ordinal value of each unit of um, means of production plays into the ultimate value of products that are produced. Yeah,
1: okay. yeah. The, the marginal utility... Well, you see, like when people are thinking of the marginal utility of water and you know, Assuming water is more valuable than diamonds, uh, they're looking at, uh, at, at uh, someone drinking water who's uh, dying of thirst. Yeah,
2: yeah. But in
1: normal circumstances, uh, the water you drink to slake your thirst is no more important than the water you use to, to spray a beer can down your driveway. Yeah. Yeah. It's determined by the marginal value. Sure. Now, what Lombardic bon is doing is saying the same means of production can have physically different products. And those physically different products, some of them might be in the category of uh, the water needed to avoid dying of starvation. And uh, other uh, units of the means of production are producing radically lower, less important things.
0: Well, the value
1: of the means of production is determined by the value of the marginal product. And then the value of the means of production comes forward and brings down the value of the supra marginal products to conform to the value of the marginal product. That's what's present in the cases in which value is determined by cost. Okay. Okay,
0: thank you. I fear we're running out of time, but I certainly feel like I have been uh, a party to the Mises seminar this evening. and um, Thank you so much, George, for joining us and educating us on um, these really important points on economics, particularly the greatest error in the history of economic thought get george's book at capitalism.net or on amazon yeah thank you so much george for for, also thank you also for satisfying my curiosity on random Mises because that's something of great interest to me you're very
1: welcome it's been my
0: pleasure thank you thank you good night good night bye bye